Well, good morning. We're so glad to have you here at Reston Bible Church. We are going to jump back into our series in the book of James. If you have a Bible with you, and I hope you do, you can turn to James chapter 1, verses 13 through 18 is where we're going to be this morning. If you remember just a little bit of history, the early church was largely Jewish. The book of James is perhaps the first book written of the New Testament, we're about 10 years in as it, or so. So Jesus uh, went up to heaven about 33 to 35 AD. So we're looking at about 45 at this point. Uh, there have been a series of persecutions. The first one was after the stoning of Stephen early in the book of Acts. And then there was a persecution that kind of dispersed the church uh, around the whole uh, region The book of James was written to a struggling, poor, persecuted church, specifically regarding practical wisdom for living in difficult times. In week one, uh, we covered perseverance through trials, steadfastness in trials, and that God's goal is that we would be mature and complete, looking more and more like him along the journey through trials, and that that trials are tests that in the power of the Holy Spirit, we are to hopefully pass and become more and more like him in the process. Week two, we talked about gaining wisdom. Remember that wisdom, this pursuit of wisdom, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask, is what the verses say, uh, is set in the context of difficulty. So if you're in the midst of difficulty, you don't know what to do, uh, that you should ask. And God loves to provide. Today, we're going to talk about Temptation. I want to open up with uh, verse 12, which is kind of setting the stage. And then we're going to read verses 13 through 18. Verse 12, it says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. The outcome of all of this is is glory in heaven that God has for us as we persevere in this life unto eternity in Christ's likeness. Verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted... I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures. James 1, verses 13 through 18. Father, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity that we have yet again to look into your word. And Lord, today we talk about a challenging topic. We are all tempted. It's universal. It comes with having a sin nature. And Lord, because... The Bible is clear that there's no such thing as sinless perfectionism in this life. Certainly, we become more and more like Christ over our journey. It's called sanctification. And so hopefully, Lord, we shed more and more of the sinful entrapments that we experience. And yet, God, we recognize that even as followers of Jesus Christ, each and every day is filled with its own temptations. And in a certain measure of those, Lord, we move on to actually sin. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us today to understand some critical elements of how we are to look at the notion of temptation. 
And then, Father, to look at how it is that we are to live. How can we live differently today, tomorrow, this week? So that when we face temptations, we can be triumphant, more victorious over those challenges that we face. Teach us from your word today, we pray in your great name. Amen. So today we're going to cover four observations, four teachings from the passage, directly from the passage. And then we're going to talk about four applications. As we walk out of here today, what are some practical things that we can do to help navigate our unfortunate relationship with temptation that will certainly come? How do we live more effectively on the road ahead? So four observations, four teachings from the passage first. And the first one is this. The passage is clear that God is not the source of temptation. Verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. It's important for us to understand that the word for trial in our previous discussions over the last couple of weeks and the word for temptation, it's the same word. In the scriptures, when it's a trial, when it is a noun, It's a trial. So this is a thing. It's a trial. It's a noun. When it is a verb, when there's kind of an action, if you will, involved, it's a temptation. We say, is it it clean as all of that? Significantly so, yes. Most importantly, it's context. Now, you, you know this. We have situations in English where you say something, and if the context is different, that same word or phrase means something a little bit different. Same within the Bible. They understood the context, and here we see that the context is trials in the first portion of chapter one. We now move into the issue of temptations, and we understand that trials, the point is trials can lead to temptations. The significant statement that God is not the source of temptations, is critical. Why? Because the people in the first century, just like today, when we face difficulties and challenges that cause us to stumble or we trip up and perhaps we then move on to sin, what do we often tend to do? God, why? If you are this, if you are a loving God, if this, if that, We often tend to indict God. We link our challenges with his sovereignty. And when I look at my challenges and your sovereignty, surely you could have done something about this. And the Bible is very, very clear. This is one of the strongest declarative statements in the entire Bible about God and his relationship to his people. Above all things, one of the things that you can take to the bank is that if you're struggling and if you're tempted, it is not coming from God. James acknowledges... That God provides tests. His desire is that we would pass the tests and grow in maturity under Christ's likeness. Albert Barnes, a 19th century commentator and preacher, says, We are perpetually thinking, our hearts suggested constantly, that God does place before us inducements to evil with a few to lead us to sin. And that is false. He doesn't do that. We feel that he does, but he doesn't. The claim is not so crudely stated as to say that God tempts us to sin, but rather that God orchestrates situations in such a way that then we are drawn in. The challenge is that in truth, God created us in his image, but when we're facing challenges in this world, We create God in ours. We create God in our image. And people have done this for all time. We think of the Greek gods. Homer, 
has Zeus stating this. He says, it's incredible how easily, Zeus says, human beings blame the gods and believe us to be the source of their troubles when it's their own wickedness and stupidity that brings upon them sorrows more severe than any which destiny would assign. Oh, but created in the image of human beings, Zeus is an awful, awful God. He cannibalized his own pregnant wife in fear that his child would supersede him. Zeus had over 20 affairs with mortals, one of them being a man. Oh yes, gods are created in the image of mankind. And even as followers of Jesus Christ, we can at times blame God as we look at him through our lens. Proverbs 19.3 says, when a man's folly brings his own way to ruin, his heart rages against the Lord. And are we not tempted when we are struggling, when we fail? We want to explain it away and, well, pin it on God. The Bible is clear. Number one, from this passage, in the midst of your struggles, first century believers and 21st century believers, that above all things, God is not the source of temptations. Number two. Temptations operate from within. He makes it very clear that the source, the actual kind of development place, if you will, for temptation, sometimes leading to sin, is within. It says in verse 14, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. Now there's three critical words in this verse that we need to understand. And I'm going to work on the last one and, and, and go back to the first. The first one that I want to deal with, the last mentioned in this text is the word desire. It's the word epithumia. And it's an intense desire for a particular thing. It doesn't necessarily mean an evil thing. It's just an internal intense desire. However, most of the time in the scripture, it does have this slant, this notion that it's not a good thing. We have these desires that happen within us due to the fallenness that we experience. And when that happens, we are then enticed. It's a fishing metaphor. It's as if there's a lure sticking out there that entices us to engage. If you're much of a fisherman, you understand that there are different lures for different things and different kind of fish. It isn't the lure's fault that the fish bites. The fish has something internal that's attracted to the lure, that's uniquely designed For that fish to reach out and take a bite, as it is with us. It's not the external circumstances that are at fault. It's not the lure that's at fault. There are unique things within each of us. I call them sin patterns. Each one of us has that. Each of us has sin and fallenness patterns that we tend to engage in. And it's it's incumbent upon every one of us to understand what they are. And if you don't know what your sin patterns are, just ask someone near you. They'll tell you, because they know. Because at times they're a recipient of your sin patterns, whatever those might be. So we have these internal desires that get caught as if it were bait, that come from within, that see something external. The third word is, Excelco or Lord, it means to be dragged away. The image is, is something being heavily pulled, dragging it away against its will, if you look at it that way. Uh, but we have a will. We have a desire. 
and it's from within. Albert Barnes again says this, it is true that external inducements to sin may be placed before him, but they would have no force if there was not something in himself to which they corresponded and over which they might have power. In each case and in every form, the power of of the temptation is laid in some propensity of our nature, some desire of that which we do not now possess, something that we want. This is clearly outlined in 1 John chapter 2, verse 16. Many of us are aware of this. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, it's not from the Father, but from the world. We live in a world that is fallen and broken, that provides enticements. But it's something within us that if it didn't exist, wouldn't be enticed. The lust of the flesh is often thought about those fleshly desires appealing to the senses, the desire for our senses to be assuaged. Lust of the eyes is the eyes are the gateway to coveting. We want more, that which we do not have. Contentment can be defined as wanting what I already have. But our sin nature wants more. That within us once more, the pride of life, the arrogance of who I am and the position in which I hold and the respect that others give me and the accomplishments that I have made. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? And I would suggest to us today that the first place that the heart is deceptive is internally. We are deceptive to ourselves more than anywhere else. Circumstances do not cause us to sin. They are merely the stage upon which we act out the internal drama of our temptations and sin. Now, this sounds like a very depressing message so far. But I want to encourage you that as we wrap up with our four encouragements for how to live differently, it gets much better. I promise. So stick with me. God is not the source of temptation, number one. James makes that abundantly clear. It's one of the strongest declarative statements in the scriptures about how God relates to his people. He doesn't cause us to sin. He doesn't tempt us to do that. Number two, temptation operates from within. The point of origin largely is what happens in here. Coupled with the enticements of the world, and certainly the enemy is involved in that. When Jesus was tempted in Matthew chapter four, it was clearly the enemy had an involvement in that, and I don't minimize it. But we are still responsible for the choices that we make. Number three, from temptation to sin is a process. From the moment of temptation to the outgrowth of sin, it's a journey. The problem for you and for me is that the step from temptation to sin feels very short much of the time. Verse 15, then desire when it has conceived gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. James moves from that fishing metaphor to a conception and birth metaphor. Basically what he's saying, when the situation is right, the things come together, conception happens. And then there's a journey unto full-on sin. See, the problem that you and I face is that we want to look at sin as a fluke. We want to look at things that we do as, oh, how did that happen? I did not see that one coming. When in reality, we should be able to see it coming every time. 
The challenge is to know your areas of brokenness, to know how it is that the enemy, the stage upon which the enemy helps to craft an opportunity for us to be tempted, ultimately stepping into sin. I use the word brokenness because there are many things in each of us that don't feel like sin, but they are a result of the fallenness of mankind. I wouldn't look at a person who's depressed or feeling anxious and say, oh, you're in sin. But I would say that those experiences are a result of sin in the broader sense, in the brokenness of this life. You all know that I have a journey in my past related to to depression and anxiety. And it is absolutely critical for me to understand what is it that leads to those challenges. Now, the word triggered today has been kind of hijacked to mean a lot of different things in our culture. But if we take it back to its kind of real, real truth of what it is, that we all face triggers. There are things that happen that then produce an opportunity for temptation. Do you know what those are for you? I'm not an angry person. That was just a fluke. That was just a a, a random outburst. No, it wasn't. There was a temptation that engaged a process that led to that sin. Oh, I don't don't have a sexual sin problem. uh, Glancing at that pornography, that was just a fluke. No, no, it wasn't. There was a process there. There was a temptation that more than likely could have been foreseen that I'm responsible to note in my own journey. You see, we tend to want to distance from sin and and, and it's to our demise that we do that. When I am able to look at the sin, the temptation, recognize where this is going through the power of the Holy Spirit. And again, we're gonna get to this in our four closing statements. We can understand more clearly how it is that we can step forward. In the process, we often blame. This takes us back to the very beginning, Genesis chapter three, the original fall. And the man said, the woman who you gave me, God. So so Adam, all in one verse, all in one sentence, he blames her and him. I didn't do it. I mean, She just gave me some fruit and I ate it. I mean, like I'm I'm only human. Then the Lord said to the woman, what is it that you have done? And the woman said, it was a serpent. The serpent, I'm a victim. I'm trapped. I was backed into a corner. You see, the journey is temptation to sin, to shame, which results in hiding and blame, which results in alienation and death. We go from temptation to sin, to shame and hiding, to blame, to alienation and death. The opportunity that we have is to go from temptation and interrupt it right there. But even if we do go to sin, 
Shame is the natural worldly response. Guilt is the godly response. When I experience guilt, shame is the experience of feeling awful about who I am. Guilt is the experience of feeling badly about what I've done. And when I'm able to do that, when I'm able to go from temptation to sin to godly sorrow, then I can lead to repentance, to forgiveness, to reconciliation, and then to change, to change in my journey moving forward. In 1989... Ramil Robinson played for Michigan, and they were playing Wisconsin. Michigan was favored to win. Ramil Robinson found himself at the foul line. The team was down by one. If he made both shots, they would be up by one, and they would win the game. And he missed both. And they lost the game. Ramil could have hidden in shame. He could have blamed everybody else. He could have not looked in the mirror of his life, understood where he was and where he needed to be, and took proactive steps to get there. But he did take proactive steps to get there. He looked in his mirror. He recognized his deficiencies. And after practice, every day, he took 100 foul shots after the team had left the gym. He found himself in the national championship in overtime at the foul line. And he went on to win the game, the national championship for his team. Because he took responsibility for what he needed to do and he did it. And when we find ourselves as temptation operating from within. And when we recognize that that temptation to sin is a process that we can interrupt, that we can understand, that in the power of the Holy Spirit and engaging his word and often in community, we take proactive steps to stop at temptation and not take the step over to sin. We can indeed live more successfully In God's power. God is not the source of temptation, number one. Temptation operates from within, number two. From temptation to sin is a process, number three. And finally, God is not the giver, excuse me, God is the giver of good gifts. God is the giver of good gifts. Verses 16 through 18. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow, Due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Don't be deceived. Not only can God not be indicted for bringing temptation, he is the one who gives good gifts. And ge- generating a spirit, a, a disposition of gratefulness and thankfulness is very, very important in the ongoing challenge of temptation. When we have a grateful spirit, when we put God exactly where he is, we acknowledge him for who he is and what he's done. That is an undergirding truth for living more successfully when tempted. Charles Spurgeon, one of the most well-known preachers of all time, was walking through the streets of London when he was robbed. He came home and he told his wife, 
well, thank the Lord anyway. And she said, thank the Lord that somebody stole your money? And he said, I'm thankful that the robber just took my money and not my life. I'm thankful that I left most of my money at home and that he didn't rob me of much. And thirdly, he said, more than all of that, I'm thankful to God that I was not the robber. You know, developing a spirit of gratefulness in the midst of life's challenges is a foundational and critical principle for being able to experience temptation successfully. When we are frustrated with God, when we do not have a grateful spirit for the gifts that he's given us, as veiled as they might be in trials, we are more susceptible to number one, blaming God and then taking those temptations over the line into sin. And a grateful spirit, even in the midst of challenges, is so critical in helping us navigate temptation. You know, one of the things that I have the opportunity to do as a pastor is peek behind the curtain of the difficulties and pain of the lives of other people. Because many people come and they talk about the, the horrible things that they've experienced, the, the pain, the, the illness, the tragedies, the what, whatever it might be. And one of the greatest encouragements to me when I'm facing difficulty is knowing that other people are living in difficulty. You know, one of the challenges that we face, especially if we are in a moment of struggle, of trial, that is rather unique, that we don't know very many people that are facing that particular trial, then what we tend to do is we, we elevate that trial. It becomes all of who we are. We fail to see all of the ways that God has blessed us in other ways. And we also tend to forget that we should be grateful for the ways that we aren't facing a trial that other people are. Our world becomes very small and that trial becomes very central. And when we have a grateful spirit, and I will often say, I am so grateful, Lord. I'm looking at so-and-so struggle and I can't imagine being them right now. And it allows me, encourages me to be more grateful and resist temptation in my own journey. God is not the source of temptation, number one. Number two, temptation operates from within. Number three, from temptation to sin is a process. And number four, God is the giver of good gifts. These are the teachings from this passage. You say, okay, great. I'm still not feeling quite that, I'm not feeling that much better. Uh, you say we're getting there. Now, that, now's what we're gonna do. That's what we're gonna do now. We're gonna talk about four encouragements, four things that we can do as we walk out of here today to live more successfully in the midst of temptation. The first one, we've already alluded to it. And I'm t- I mean, really wanna encourage you to take this very, very, very seriously is to identify your sin patterns and the process. Identify your sin patterns and the process. Go to God's word. Rely on his Holy Spirit and identify your areas of brokenness. What are they? What are the ways that the enemy tends to trip you up? They're classic. At this point as an adult, you should be able to identify what those things are. 
you have to go look in the mirror, allow God to take his finger and poke around in your life and say yes. The quicker you say yes to what God is telling you about these areas for you, the more success you will have moving forward. It's the denial that it's a problem that is the problem. It's the unwillingness to look hard into what those areas are for me that set me up to go from temptation to sin in the future. We said that shame is a killer. Shame is not God's design. Shame does not come from God. It does not come from God. That's internal and that's from the enemy. Oh yeah, some Christian you turned out to be. You hear it, You, you get the tape playing in your head. And some of us, because we have unconfessed sin or a temptation that's consistent that we we really, really don't want to get rid of. Something that's kept us sidelined from being able to fully be used by God. Today is the day. Confess it. Do business with it. Identify it. Be relentless. Reynald III, Duke of Gelder's ruled in what's now Belgium in the 1300s. He was grossly overweight and his nickname among the people was the Latin word for crass, it was the Latin word crassus, which simply means fat. His younger brother Edward revolted and threw his brother Reynald into a room in the Newkirk Castle. Here was the challenge. The doors of this room were constructed that the doors were open. Reynald could have left at any time. If he would only lose weight. His brother kept feeding him all this good food every day. And for 10 years, Reynald was stuck in that room. Because he couldn't say no to his own temptations. He was free to leave. Edward said, my brother is free to leave at any time. (laughs) Can you imagine that? What are your sin patterns? What are your brokenness patterns that are predictable, that lead to sin? Identify them. Number two, rely on God for the way out. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. Nothing new under the sun. And God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, here it is, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So what is God's way of escape? What is God's way of escape? His word? His spirit? Godly community that we submit ourselves to for accountability? Whatever your challenges are, there are scripture references, Bible verses that apply. Do you know what they are? If you deal with anxiety, do you know what this Bible verses are that you can internalize, that you can hide that word in your heart, that you can repeat to yourself, that you can pray back to the Lord each and every day? If you have a problem with anger, do you know what verses in the scripture that that can help walk you through that? That can help you conquer the anger challenges that you have? Do you know what they are? The Bible is filled with them. All you need to do is look them up. Oh, for goodness sakes, all you need to do is go to Google and put top verses for anxiety and you'll get the top 20 verses. It's one of the few really good uses of Google. Own them. 
Embrace them. Live them. Pray them back. Pray them back to God. One of my favorite verses for purity is found in Psalm 101. And I love it. It's best in the NIV 84. It says, I will walk in my house with a blameless heart. I will set before my eyes no vile thing. The deeds of faithless men I hate, they will not cling to me. And if you have a problem with sexual purity, every time you're tempted in your house, I will walk in my house with a blameless heart. I will set before my eyes no vile thing. The deeds of faithless men I hate, they will not cling to me. Own it, embrace it, internalize it. Pray it back to the Lord every day. Confess your sins to one another. James chapter five says, we're gonna get to that down the road. If you don't have accountability with the sins and the temptations and sins that you face, you are the less for it. There is success in God's word, in his spirit, and in the community of believers if we are willing, if we're willing. Number one, identify your sin patterns in the process. Number two, rely on God for the way out. Number three, win the battle for your mind. Win the battle for your mind. The battleground for all temptation is the mind. The expression of a temptation into sin is usually in the body. Romans 12, 2. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. When you take God's word and you bathe your mind in it, you renew your mind with it, then you can discern what I should do differently, what the will of God is. Chris Lungard, in his book, The Enemy Within, straight talk about the power and defeat of sin. This is what he says. Remember that the mind is the watchman for the soul, commanded to judge and determine whether something is good and pleasing to God, so the affections can long for it and the will can choose it. If the mind fails to identify sin as evil, wicked, vile, and bitter, the affections then will not be safe from clinging to it, nor the will from giving it assent. The mind is what must inform and control the emotions and the heart, must, conf- must control the will. It starts in the mind. He goes on to say, your flesh will whisper to you in your mind that strictness and anxious care about obedience are legalism. The gospel came to deliver you from such things. Oh, but Jesus in John 14, 21 says, whoever has my commands and keeps them, who obeys them. This is the one who loves me. When you do what I tell you to do, it shows that you love me. It's not legalism. Yes, it can, be, it can lead to that if we leave Jesus out of the equation altogether. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. When we are willing to renew our mind, when we're willing to take every thought captive and submit it to Jesus, then we can be successful against temptation. Number one, identify your sin patterns and broken and, and its process. Number two, rely on God for the way out. Activate his word and his spirit and the, the body of Christ. Number three, win the battle for your mind. It all happens up here first. Fourth and finally, 
embrace, embrace that Jesus understands. Now, I, it is my hope that this would be the most encouraging thing of the day. The most encouraging thing of the day. Jesus gets us when it comes to temptation. Puritan author and pastor Thomas Goodwin in 1651 wrote a book. Today it's called The Heart of Christ. If you know anything about that time period, titles of books were often quite long. If you flip to the title page of this book, this is what it says. It says the heart, this, this whole thing is the title. The heart of Christ in heaven towards sinners on earth or a treatise demonstrating the gracious disposition and tender affection of Christ in his humane nature now in glory unto his members under all sorts of infirmities either of sin or misery. What does all that mean? Jesus sits in a place where he is not repelled by your sin. You see, we believe that God is repelled by our sin. Why? Because we've created him in our image. Because when your children sin, when my children sin, I'm repelled by that. My first response to my children's sin is not grace. It's internal judgment because they disobeyed and broke the rules. Now, I may not say that. I may be able to talk myself into a moment of grace where I actually intervene with my child in a healthy way, but we cannot project that out on God. Hebrews 4 says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Hold fast what you believe. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. No, we don't have that. But one who in every respect, not a few respects, not some, but in every respect, has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. See, you and I, that step from temptation to sin is such a short step. We can't imagine what it's like to be tempted without sinning. We sometimes can do it, but so often we don't. Let us then, because of that, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace. Why? Because Jesus has grace for us. That we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is Jesus. The word sympathize is the Greek word sympatheo. It's actually two words combined. It says it's with suffering. In other words, when Jesus says he sympathizes... It's not, as Dane Ortland in his book, General and Lowly, says, it's sympathize here is not a cool and detached pity. Oh, I'm so sorry. I feel bad for you. It is a depth of felt solidarity. His human nature engages our troubles comprehensively. Jesus was thirsty, he was hungry, he was, he was tired, he was rejected, he was misunderstood, he was in pain. Dane Ortland goes on to say, not only can he alone pull us out of the hole of sin, he alone desires to climb in and bear our burdens together. Your temptation actually draws Jesus to you. It doesn't expel him from you. 
When you find yourself at rock bottom, it's imperative that you understand that Jesus is the rock at the bottom. He is there. He is with you. He loves you. The moment of your temptation, he is drawn near. And then the moment when you cross, unfortunately, from temptation to sin, he is really drawn near. So that you can draw near to him with confidence because he has grace for you, not judgment for you. The judgment was taken care of at the cross. It was taken care of at the cross. Have you ever seen the image of the lighthouse that seemed to be in the middle of the ocean that's getting clobbered by this most enormous wave? You watch it and you think, how can it endure that? What I'd really like for you to picture is a small lighthouse next to the large lighthouse that doesn't endure it. That's us. The weight, the power behind the wave crashing against that lighthouse Jesus is that lighthouse and he felt that impact in full force. Yet he was able to endure it. He did not cave under the weight of the massiveness of temptation of our world. And that's the image that helps me understand how Jesus was able to be tempted in every way but without sin because getting my arms around that is almost impossible. Jesus struggled in this world. He was a human man. Imagine being out there after 40 days without food and the devil tempted him to turn those stones into bread. Do you think in his humanity he wanted to do that? (laughs) The man was starving, literally. And he felt the impact of that temptation but in his deity was able to endure. You're facing some temptation. You're facing challenges in your life. God is not to blame. He is not the source. It operates from within. We need to understand there's a a process from temptation to sin. God is the giver of all good gifts. And as we walk out of here today, I pray that you take very, very seriously And that this afternoon or tonight or in your quiet time tomorrow, you take inventory. Lord, what are the brokenness and sin patterns of my life? What is the process from temptation in my journey to sin? I want to keep the shame away. I just want to experience godly sorrow and guilt that I might repent, experience your forgiveness but Lord, I pray that if, if you help me understand what that process is and you help me to rely on your word, your way out and your people and the Holy Spirit, then I will take advantage of that and seek to interrupt the whole process right at temptation. Lord, help me to win the battle for my mind. Help me to gather around myself the verses, the scriptures that I need to internalize and to pray back to you. And above all, Lord Jesus, I am so grateful that you understand. And I pray that you will help me, that in my deepest struggles, that you would help me to know the truth is that you are near. And that my temptations and challenges draw you near. That's what your word says. You are not repelled. You're not not turning your back on me. 
Your compassion draws you near. Will you do that today? We're going to go to communion now. I ask you to grab those elements. And, and, and communion is always, always an acknowledgement of who Jesus is. It's always an acknowledgement of what he's done for us. But I like to take each time we have communion and, and craft it with a, a, spo- a focused time of reflection. And as Julie's playing a little bit of music, we're going to take some time and we're going to look at those four last elements. And I want to encourage you to do some business with God. Say, God, help me. Show me what my patterns are. Lord, help me to, to make some decisions about what steps I need to take to rely on your way out. Lord, give me those verses that I might renew my mind and win the battle for my mind. And would you take a few minutes and thank Jesus that even in your temptation, he draws near because he loves you and he paid for your sin. Let's take a few minutes and talk talk to the Lord. Go ahead and do that. Father, there are few messages that are as critical as dealing with temptation. It is a universal reality. Lord, the more we become like Jesus, the more equipped we are to battle temptation, the more often we can interrupt the journey and the process so that we do not sin. And Father, I pray that through your spirit, you would take some of the points of discussion today and that every single one of us, God, would leave here today with some clear action steps, some things that we need to do business with you on. God, help us, even though we're followers of Jesus, to not take sin lightly. Yes, our sin is paid for. But God, we shouldn't take that as an opportunity to let our guard down and to allow temptations to take root unto sin. Lord God, we've talked about many things today and as we take communion, I pray, Lord God, that you would allow us to draw near to you, that you would draw near to us, that you would comfort those who are in a state of real brokenness because of sin. Father, for all of us, I pray, that we would be relentless, not legalistic, but relentless in understanding these things that we might live with greater freedom in the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross. All of this rests on the cross. All of this rests on the truth that our sin is forgiven. That when you, your body was broken, it was that we might be healed first and foremost spiritually. So Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for your broken body. Let's participate in the bread together.
Lord Jesus, you initiated a new covenant with us in your blood. For without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins, your word says. Lord Jesus, thank you. We proclaim your death until you come again. That's what we're told to do. And we pray, Lord God, that as we leave this place, we would be empowered because of what you've done for us to live more successfully, to experience the joy of being tempted and not giving in. And then when we do, Lord, we have the opportunity instantly through confession to be reconciled with you and to move forward with a clean slate. But may, us, may we do that with intelligence, with clarity, with education, with steps to take on how we might engage more effectively, Lord God. Thank you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the covenant in your blood. Let's participate in the cup together. And Father, as we close today, I pray for those among us who are not true followers of Jesus. Father, who need to recognize today that, that sin is only paid for in Christ. There's no amount of good works or religious activity that can do it. And that today would be the day that they engage Jesus for that very first step of salvation having access to the power that you provide to resist temptation and to honor you with our lives. We love you, Lord. We pray in your name. Amen.